Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Representative John Larson has served Connecticut's first congressional district since 1999. Today, he joins us to talk about several issues, including infrastructure. Now, several years ago, he proposed a Hartford tunnel plan to fix the highways that cut off the capital city. He still supports that idea. The latest plan centers on moving the I-84 and I-91 interchanges and making parts of the highway into tunnels underground. The big question, of course, is how to pay for it. President Biden's infrastructure plan could help, but there are also competing projects around the country. Do you live in the 1st Congressional District and have a question for Congressman John Larson? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter, at where we live. Congressman John Larson joins us on Zoom from Washington, D.C. Congressman Larson, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Coming up later, we'll hear from Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari. Now, Congressman, the last time we spoke, the pandemic had just started, and you were my first Zoom guest on Where We Live. And here we are, still on Zoom. How did you and your family weather this pandemic? You know, very well, but I think like all families, uh, especially with seven brothers and sisters, and um, six of them, who we all live within about five miles of one another, really didn't get to see an awful lot of uh, one another, especially with the pandemic and the holidays. And uh, with a, when you're born into a family of eight children, uh, holidays are a momentous occasion. And now when we meet as a family, it's uh, 50 to 70 people. So it's, uh, I miss that. And, uh, and certainly it's been, been tough on everybody, but I feel like we've turned a corner. Uh, there's a lot left to do, especially with vaccinations and we want to make sure that people who need them most are getting them. We spent a lot of time with CRT talking about this when we were home on the break as well as a woman against violence uh, too, who I think uh, do incredible work, but we have to get out in the community and uh, do everything we can to uh, get towards that herd immunity, which will be so important. When you talk to your constituents who still have questions about the COVID vaccine, how do you address those questions? Well, I say, first of all, that, uh, listen, uh, there's always concern about, well, which one should I get? Was it Pfizer's, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson said, whichever one you get means that you're not going to die. And so I said, start with there and then understand the importance and, um, I think my wife and I have Pfizer's and I think one of my daughters had, uh, two of my daughters had Moderna and my son who's out in Chicago uh, had uh, Moderna also. It's really sobering to think more than 8,100 Connecticut residents have died, Congressman Larson. And while many of us feel like we've turned the corner, there are still people who are hesitant to get this vaccine. Does that concern you? Yeah, it does. And especially uh, uh, we were talking just yesterday about um, 
the misinformation too that's still out there uh, in social media. And uh, part of that is uh, trying to uh, get some of the major carriers to take down some of this misinformation. And as you can imagine, it runs into all kind of First Amendment issues uh, as well. But nonetheless, uh, when there's misinformation out there and people are being uh, scared uh, away from uh, this, uh, it should uh, rise to everybody's attention. There is, when they talk about herd immunity, there is a certain responsibility to um, your neighbors, your family, and uh, everybody else in the community. Uh, I commend Governor Lamont. I think he's done, and it's, um, it's great to uh, uh, know that we have a governor that's uh, done an excellent job. And while there's still a lot of work to do, and by no means people are not taking their uh, foot off the pedal, so to speak, uh, you know, we have to just uh, continue to be pers persistent and uh, encourage people to get their vaccinations. You're hearing Congressman John Larson. He serves the 1st Congressional District in our state. If you have a question for him, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's talk highways. You've been a, sure. a longtime advocate for putting parts of I-84 and I-91 in the Hartford area into tunnels. Now there's a, a plan called Hartford 400. So talk about uh, the differences between what you proposed just a few years ago and why you're putting support behind this plan now. Well, uh, first and foremost, I think you have to take a look at the situation. I mean, we're dealing with a highway system that was last put together by uh, White David Eisenhower uh, back in the 50s. And uh, there is, as uh, you know, Lucy, no beltway system around Hartford. Uh, in most cases where you have two major federal highways intersecting, uh, you would have a way to get around that, uh, especially when they all converge at the hub of the capital city of Hartford. Uh, but, uh, you know, back then, uh, uh, Beatrice uh, Fox Orbach had uh, quite a bit of influence. And uh, the reason that we see 84 and 91 converging where they do is because they do right at the intersection of, oh, G. Fox and company. Then the largest uh, mm. uh, retail store uh, in the, in New England. And of course, as you know, also is no longer in existence, but we still live with that issue. And what is that issue? Well, 84 and 91 is the number one chokehold in the state of Connecticut. It's number two in New England. It's number 11 overall in the country and when you throw in the levees and the issue of sandpiping which brought the collapse of the levees in the ninth ward in new orleans uh we rise to a sense of urgency that there hasn't been there before we're just grateful that we have a president now uh, a lot of presidents including uh, president trump obama and even bush before obama had said have been talking about doing an infrastructure plan and talking about it, but it has never come to fruition. So we're long overdue. And one of the ways, uh, when you look at the problem here, uh, outside of the obvious congestion, there also has been an equity issue, a, a glaring one, where North Hartford, once a vibrant community, uh, and now the zip code of what the, the residents call the 06120, 
is among the poorest. Uh, it's the poorest in the state of uh, Connecticut and among the poorest in the nation. And in part, in large part, because it has been isolated by concrete by 84 and 91. 91 blocking it from access to the Connecticut River, the only Blue Ways River designated in the, in the country. In 84, you know, with more than eight lanes of highway and uh, overpasses, et cetera, that block North Hartford from the rest of the city. Uh, for more than 50 years, it's been a goal of riverfront recapture uh, to uh, reconnect to the Connecticut River. And so the that's why uh, Hartford 400's view is so vitally important. And a number of years ago, and sitting down with engineers, et cetera, and looking at, you know, the Mixmaster in East Hartford, which is the equivalent uh, in concrete of all of the space in downtown Hartford. Uh, so, and a community, whole communities there that used to exist in the South Meadows were uprooted there as well. And so it seems as though uh, uh, the Biden administration had um, projects like this in mind uh, when they introduced their infrastructure plan as well. And so we're very uh, excited about the uh, prospect. I commend uh, again, Governor Lamont and uh, Commissioner Gioletti who have been doing an ongoing uh, study uh, and scrapped the former department uh, uh, idea that we would just kind of replicate what we had there before and recognize that this is a transformative change for the region in terms of economics, in terms of congestion, in terms of climate change, in terms of racial isolation, uh, and especially the inequity that was dealt the people in North Hartford and the old South Meadows and East Hartford. And Throughout all of that, of course, is the whole notion that we make it not just highways, but intermodal. Mm. Congressman, I mentioned Hartford 400. This is a, a put forth by the iQuilt Partnership in Hartford. Right. And so uh, proposing a ring road around downtown, some tunneling, not as much of tunneling as what you had proposed a few years ago, new connections to East Hartford. This has, a, I believe, a $17 billion price tag. It would take uh, almost uh, 20 years. Uh, to uh, to construct, you know, I'm just wondering how are you going to pay for it, and how do you get the buy-in for this kind of project? Well, we're paying for it because the federal government has stepped up and said, uh, you know, we get a D minus rating overall by engineers and people saying that this is the state of our infrastructure. Uh, these are federal highways, and they need federal funding. I make no apologies for that because uh, Connecticut as a state, you know, sends more money to Washington DC than we get back in return. And so um, this is a 50 statewide and, uh, and, and plus some of the territories infrastructure plan that the Biden administration has boldly uh, put out there. And so uh, we wanna make sure that in that we plan for the next century. As we said earlier, 84 and 91, the interchange system uh, was designed back during the Eisenhower administration. And suffice it to say, a lot of things have changed and especially the concept of intermodal transportation. So when we talk about connectivity and intermodal, and when we look at 
Hartford as a hub. And then we see the rail. We also see Bradley International. We also see busways and walkways and greenways and connection to the river and then lessening the congestion overall, which of course will be far better off uh, for the environment. Uh, so uh, these are all what the Biden administration has in mind. And we've also had both Democrat and Republican, you know, uh, chairs of the transportation committee up to the district and both once you see it and visualize it, it's uh, it's easy to understand what a gross mistake that was um, many years ago. And now is the time to fix it. And so that's why the department's going through a study. And listen, yes, we proposed an idea that engineers suggested would be a good idea you know, to tunnel. That's one way that you could reclaim valuable land that connects to both Hartford and East Hartford and Windsor and South Windsor and Wethersfield and Glastonbury back to the riverfront. And, uh, but it's especially intense between the Charter Oak Bridge and the Bissell Bridge, where we, uh, where a lot of the emphasis is, is going to be made. Uh, Tony tweeted uh, to us here on the show, Congressman Larson, uh, he, he writes, I'm worried about how this transportation plan, again, Hartford 400, isn't connected to public input. Uh, he writes, the plan you're supporting is working with a West Coast design firm without community engagement or workshops. And he continues by saying, without local engagement and grassroots support, especially from non-car owning Hartford households, the plan is much less likely to succeed. So talk about how... Um, input from Hartford residents and others is being brought into this process. Well, let me commend again, Hartford 400 and the IQUIL project. They've been doing uh, a fantastic job. We just had a, a forum for uh, the General Assembly where we went through that to for them to partake. Uh, the Department of Transportation is currently undergoing a study of the whole area and what they feel. And listen, you're right. I uh, said, listen, one of the ways from an engineering perspective that we could approach this is through tunnels. But here's the deal. Whether it's tunnels or not, whatever uh, ends the isolation of North Hartford and connects it with the rest of the city, whatever ends the barricade uh, that prevents the city from connecting to the riverfront, and alleviates the mixed masters of congestion, whether it's tunnels or capovers or whatever the case may be, that's what the study and the input will continue to uh, push forward. And, and then uh, we'll continue to get the um, uh, funding at the, at the federal level. We are submitting a $20 million earmark uh, just for the comprehensive ongoing regional studies, because as you said, this is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while both to dismantle and then uh, uh, design and put in place uh, a highway system that will take us into the next century. And as I said earlier, also be intermodal in terms of its focus.
You're hearing Congressman John Larson here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677. If you live in the 1st Congressional District and have a question for the congressman, this is the way to join. You can also share a Facebook comment or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Just to wrap up on Hartford 400, Bridget tweeted, many U.S. cities, including Louisville, capitalized off the river. It's a thriving part of that city's economy, and the Connecticut River is a treasure for East Hartford and Connecticut's capital. When we talk about high-speed rail, there's a couple of of projects. I know that you were just speaking uh, recently about uh, additional work on the Hartford line between Springfield, Hartford, and New Haven, upgrading rail service between Springfield, Worcester, and Boston. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this North Atlantic rail project, high-speed rail between Boston and New York City that could tunnel under Long Island Sound, Congressman. Well, I think that, uh, again, they have a bold initiative, and our focus is on uh, how that will intersect with uh, the city of Hartford, which will become a hub. Uh, and uh, you're correct. Uh, we were up in uh, Congressman Neal's district in Springfield, you know, and basically commenting on a, a study that had been done uh, by Krog. And uh, Lyle Ray was up there, and uh, they did, I think, a great service in demonstrating what the economic development would be based on that. And also uh, something that people have talked about forever, which is connecting uh, Hartford uh, to not just Springfield, but Worcester and Boston and New Haven, you know, Stanford and, and New York, et cetera. And a lot of that work has been done already. We've been able to get uh, secure funding. Uh, Rich Neal, who's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is in Springfield. and. Oh, by the way, the chairman, chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee is Rosa DeLauro in New Haven. And uh, they share the same concern and interest over uh, rail traffic uh, between uh, Springfield and New Haven and New Haven and New York and Springfield and Boston. And the hub to all of that will be uh, Hartford and then connecting some of our smaller areas. But that's a long-term vision as well, but one that in terms of the planning and from an intermodal perspective, uh, we wanna make sure that that's a part of it and people are thinking that through. You mentioned earlier the Democrats, uh, again, control the House, the Senate, and the White House. uh, And it's important to uh, try to move forward on Biden's infrastructure. Uh, plan. But again, uh, to pay for it, we're talking about hiking taxes on on corporate profits. And I imagine there's no GOP buy-in for that, Congressman. Well, uh, there hasn't been a lot of GOP buy-in for many (laughs) things, uh, as we saw in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, They do take credit for everybody getting checks, but uh, they haven't exactly voted for it. But uh, That's another story. Uh, And uh, I do think we are hopeful because, listen, you know, uh, infrastructure does not carry with it a uh, political identification. You know, people, you know, whether you're a Democrat, Republican or independent, recognize that we have a D minus rating, that this is long overdue and we're going to have to do. And this will pay for itself over time in terms of the economic payback that we anticipate we're going to receive. And we'll also put people to work now. And so as a likely follow-on to the American Rescue Plan, uh, which focused on putting vaccinations in people's arms, putting 
money back in their wallets, putting children back in their seats in school and putting the country uh, back to work. And that's got to continue to be our focus. And I commend President Biden uh, for uh, making sure that we're going out there and do this. And most economists are saying the same thing. This is exactly what we need to do uh, to go forward. Now, uh, the Republicans would say the plans are too ambitious, but nonetheless, they say, oh yes, we agree that we have to uh, address the infrastructure issue. So I think that there's a great opportunity here to uh, work together and let's hope that uh, that we're able to accomplish that. But whether we're, we work together or whether they want to focus on the midterm elections is up to them, uh, but there will be ample opportunity uh, to join uh, together because infrastructure impacts every community and every state, and um, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. We'll take your calls with Congressman John Larson right after this break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel today. First District Congressman John Larson is with us. The number to call to ask him a question, 888-720-9677. Bill's calling in from Windsor. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, hi, Senator Larson. And thank you for being hi, on Bill. here today. Um, hi, I'm a I'm a lifelong Connecticut resident and uh Yukon grad. I, I live I live about two miles from the Bissell Bridge. Fantastic. Uh, and, um, I'm kind of a yeah. We're hoping that the naturalist view uh, takes a takes a, a, a strong uh, presence in the plans that move forward. Oh, uh, absolutely! You might have been there, Bill, just a couple of weeks ago. We were right on the um, Hartford Windsor border, and um, we were able to secure over five hundred thousand dollars for uh, help to further clean up uh, that area, but also part of the purchasing of. Uh, uh, riverfront recapture and magnificent trails that will extend, you know, from Windsor through Hartford down into uh, Weathersfield, going by our historic uh, Coltsville, but also on the east side of the river, which uh, sometimes feels it's neglected, but also making sure from uh, South Windsor, East Hartford, and Glastonbury that these trails uh, continue throughout it. So it's a, a wonderful opportunity and. People who have walked it just say how remarkable it is and the sense of being able to get back to the river. Uh, as I said earlier, the only uh, Blue Ways uh, River designated in the country to date. And it's uh, such a vital resource on so many levels for the state of Connecticut and for the people who enjoy that river so much. Again, the number to call in, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This should come as no surprise, but House Republicans have just voted to oust Representative Liz Cheney from their leadership ranks for her refusal to stay quiet over Donald Trump's election lies. There's also a movement, more than 100 Republicans threatening to form a third party if the GOP does not make certain changes. How do you respond to this, Congressman? 
Well, uh, first of all, I give Liz Cheney uh, an awful lot of uh, credit uh, because, uh, you know, prior to this uh, and even um, back in the fall, even before the events of January 6th, uh, she was outspoken and unafraid when she saw that there was something that wasn't right or was an outright falsehood, she she spoke up. And so uh, I commend her uh, for that, you know, and uh, the Republicans are currently going through their uh, struggle, you know, and, and I think it's a struggle for the soul of their party as to whether or not they will continue to ideologically follow Donald Trump or they will uh, go back to the more uh, traditional or what we would call a, a New England uh, Republican, you know, that oftentimes was socially conscious and fiscally uh, conservative. Uh, we also call them uh, New Dems and Blue Dogs in the Democratic caucus as well. So there is always a transition, uh, but um, her speech on the floor last evening, uh, I thought was, uh, will be one of those that people will remember for some time. Mm. There's also a movement within your party, Congressman Larson, uh, younger yep. progressive Democrats uh, that really want to push for change. Uh, they're they're tired of what they see as traditional politics. Uh, a couple of Democrats here in our state, um, progressives, already saying they want to challenge you. Uh, do you expect to to run for re-election in 2022? Uh, we've been focused on uh, doing all the progressive things, whether it's the Green New Deal or whether it's uh, working with Mothers Against Violence, uh, whether it's getting money back into the community. And as I said, making sure right now that people are getting vaccinations in their arms, that we're able to assist people, uh, and especially most recently restaurants and others who through no fault of their own, have been impacted by this pandemic. That's where our focus is. I, I do expect to uh, to run again, but uh, we've got our hands full right now. And the focus has got to be on getting the job done currently. Uh, and listen, it's a great country and it's great that people aspire uh, to run for, for higher office. And uh, God bless. But uh, we have work to do that's at hand, and that's where my focus will continue to be. Let's talk about uh, your walk with Mothers United Against Violence. I know on our show we've talked about uh, the recent violence in Hartford where a little mm -hmm. boy, three-year-old Randell Jones, was killed, mm -hmm. also 16-year-old Jamari Preston. Uh, this is not an issue that's new uh, to oh. the capital city, and I want to know what they talked about with you and how you hope to help them and, and these communities that are struggling right now? Well, well first, you, um, uh, the, we are so blessed that in a community like Harford that you have people like uh, Deb Davis and Henrietta Beckman and, of course, the um, uh, Reverend Henry Brown, uh, they have just been remarkable in terms of their dedication and uh, their volunteerism. Uh, when you look in their eyes and you see that they carry the weight of a neighborhood and the grief of so many people, um, we walk through the area where 
Randall was shot and then uh, to the, uh, uh, the site where um, they had erected to Jamari. And um, they talk about the pain and the difficulty for people to go out in the, in the fear and the need for money. They also talked about uh, how they've worked with the police department and talking about, um, and one of the women who they put on the phone with me said that Detective Moretti calls her almost every day to check in with her, et cetera. And especially given the tensions of the time, uh, this is what they're able to do. And, and uh, Reverend Brown made a point of recognizing the police officers that, that were there uh, with us as well. And uh, they need our help and we need to put resources in there. We were fortunate in 2019 to uh, get them uh, around $800,000. We've just put in another earmark. And uh, you know, I think all of the state of Connecticut, when you see these mothers, thank them. Uh, they're, they're carrying this burden uh, and um, this is something that is a shared responsibility, not just of the 06120 in Hartford, uh, but the city in general, and of course, the state and the, and the nation. There's been far too much um, of violence across the country and gun violence uh, specifically. And we've taken action in the house and that was part of what we were talking about and passed laws, but the Senate, uh, because of the cloture rule has yet to uh, take up the legislation that we've passed. But it, legislation in and of itself is just one part of the solution. Uh, and um, we need to uh, do a far better job of community uh, outreach. Um, mm. And in most of these endeavors as well, I've been uh, joined by uh, uh, Mayor Bronin, who just seems to be everywhere in the city and has done, uh, I think, uh, an incredible uh, job. We've met with the counselors and uh, I think this is what we have to do is to be persistent in our support and recognize the incredible uh, grief and then also get people to come forward. Uh, and that takes a lot because there's a lot of distrust, Lucy, uh, for government in general across the board. Uh, and frankly, a lot of distrust of media as well. And so uh, people are getting their news, getting their information on social media and from sources oftentimes that uh, are mythical or uh, clearly not the whole truth, but nothing and nothing but the truth. Congressman, you mentioned legislation is just uh, one part of the solution. And, and certainly Mothers United Against Violence is one of several community groups uh, that have been really uh, on the ground working uh, in these communities for some time. I spoke with uh, Calvin Lovejoy with Hartford Communities That Care just a few weeks ago. This group responds to violence, helps families of victims. And he says that, you know, with policymakers, obviously resources, uh, violence prevention is one thing. But policymakers need to do more to address systemic issues like poverty, like housing instability, like education disparities that still persist in our state. Uh, so what do you say to that and, and how you, you and your colleagues right. and what he's, can you do to help them? Yeah, I, first of all, I say that he's absolutely right. And uh, uh, that's what we have to do. I, you know, uh, I was proud to be the author of the first uh, family and medical leave bill in the country. 
We worked with, directly with Ed Ziegler. That was more than 30 years ago. But Ed Ziegler was talking 30 years ago about what we need to do in terms of looking at communities and schools as resources and how we're reaching out to assist and help people uh, at the very root cause of, of poverty and, and neglect and nutrition. And so we have to continue to do that. I couldn't be more honored than to have worked with Rosa DeLauro, who deserves enormous credit for the child tax credit that we passed as part of the rescue plan that came out of the Ways and Means Committee, um, which I serve. And that is going to lift more than half the children in the nation out of poverty. But improvement as well in the American Rescue Plan for SNAP and nutrition, for healthcare, uh, for all the attendant things, and forgive me, but who that the caller identified as the systemic pro problems that exist. Yes, we still have to continue to get funding uh, to uh, important agencies and neighborhood groups like Women Against Violence and uh, Communities That Care, the great work that Andrew Woods is doing as well. Uh, they need to be recognized and supportive, but there is, as was pointed out, there are long-term systemic issues that uh, we continue to grapple with. Uh, we're hopeful that we're gonna pass a paid family and medical leave uh, here as part of President Biden's human infrastructure program as well. And these are common sense solutions as we look both today uh, in the present and project out in the future in terms of what we need to do. We just have a couple of minutes left with Congressman John Larson. Again, the number to join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you chair the Social Security Subcommittee. Uh, David tweeted, wanted to know the status of the Social Security COVID-19 Correction and Equity Act, and this relates to benefits, I believe, dropping due to COVID-19. Uh, tell us more about uh, where this stands. Well, there's a couple of uh, questions there within a question, but where we stand with Social Security is we're working directly with the uh, president. Uh, uh, we're so proud that we have a president that recognizes that Social Security is a sacred trust between the people and their government. Congress has not acted to improve Social Security in 38 years. And our message and what usually holds bills up is that, well, the Senate will not take it up because they need 60 votes. That's nowhere in the Constitution. That's a Senate rule established around a filibuster. How about we do what you, know, you were elected to do and take an oath in office to do? And that's the simple requirement to vote. And whether it's on gun violence that has been over there or the more than 475 bills, most of them, 70% of them bipartisanly approved that Mitch McConnell determined wasn't gonna be voted on because of the cloture rule. We need the Senate to act and to vote on pieces of legislation like social security. The status on it is that it hasn't been enhanced in over 38 years and it's long overdue. We have, there are more than 5 million Americans that are getting, who've worked all their lives, contribute into a program and get a below poverty level check from social security. 
That's outright wrong. The last time Congress acted, Ronald Reagan was the president. Bob Dole was the leader in the Senate. These are Republicans that care deep about it. And what they put in, they put in place a raising, it was a compromise, but they raised people's ages. That isn't even through yet. The age will go up in 2022 to age 67. But what we haven't done is kept pace with a COLA that actually makes sense for uh, seniors and individuals. Uh, the pay and as they indicated that, you know, more than 5 million people and of those 5 million, they are predominantly women and specifically women of color. And so uh, these are the areas, Lucy, that we uh, have got our sleeves rolled up. We're prepared to just the late John Lewis uh, said to me at our the last press conference we had on Social Security before he passed, this is no longer just a Social Security issue. This is a civil rights issue in terms of what's happening to individuals and whether it's black males or women of, of color, what we've seen in a system is that people are undervalued and the Social Security Administration has not kept pace with the needs that have that have uh, are present in society, so we're out to correct that, enhance the program, make sure that nobody can retire into poverty, have a modest increase across the board, and where does all of this money go? Right back into the communities where they live. Nobody's getting wealthy off of Social Security. The average Social Security payment is eighteen thousand dollars. Ask someone, your friend or neighbor, if they could live on eighteen thousand dollars a year. And yet that's how people survive. And for many of them, as I indicated, more than 5 million fellow Americans receive a below poverty level check from Social Security. That's flat out wrong in the wealthiest nation in the world. We found enough room to give 1% of the nation's wealthiest people 83% of a tax cut. Can't we find the initiative here to make sure that 83% of our people get the social security, the guarantee that sacred promise that President Biden talked about. Again, Congressman John Larson representing the first congressional district here in our state. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure to hear from you. We'll see what happens. In Absolutely, Congress Lucy. Look forward to talking with you again. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari joins us with some more context. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from First District Congressman John Larson, uh, who says he expects to run in 2022. For more context on some of the challengers already appearing, uh, potential challengers, joining us now on Zoom, Hartford Current Politics reporter Daniela Altamari. Daniela, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, as I mentioned, uh, Congressman Larson says he's ex he expects to run again. He's been the congressman for the first district since 1999. There are already two Democrats seeking to challenge him, at least one Republican. You've written about it. How unusual is this? 
Yeah, it's um, it's pretty unusual. He's uh, sort of coasted to victory ever since that first uh, tough uh, election battle in the late 90s when he he did have a Democratic challenger. Well, it was an open seat and that was his first uh, his first victory. Um, ever since then, it's been smooth sailing for uh, Representative Larson. Um, but this year, uh, competitors are starting to come out and they're coming out early, which is definitely notable because when you're going up against a guy like Larson, you need to have a lot of money, you need to have a lot of support, obviously. Um, there are two uh, liberal Democrats, two uh, progressive Democrats that are running um, already. Uh, Muad Rezi, who is a uh, former um, aide to uh, Senator Chris Murphy and uh, Andrew Lagnani from uh, Berlin, both are in the race uh, criticizing Larson from the left um, saying that he's sort of out of touch with where the Democratic Party should be, you know, right now. And then um, just last week, a Republican announced he was running. The first district is obviously tough, uh, tough territory for Republicans, or it has been uh, in recent years, just because of the way it's configured um, and the advantage that Democrats have. Um, but um, uh, there's a physician from West Hartford, Larry Lazor, who is in the race. Um, it was kind of interesting to hear Representative Larson talking about when you asked him about um, Liz Cheney, mm -hmm. you know, he was talking about, uh, you know, sort of Republicans um, uh, drawing a line and and separating themselves from uh, former President Trump. That's exactly what Larry Lazor had done in his first, uh, you know, introductory video when he was first announcing his run. One of the first things he said was that the 2016, I'm sorry, the 2020 election was not rigged, was not stolen from, from Trump. Um, so he's sort of in that Liz Cheney camp. So it was kind of interesting to hear Larson, uh, you know, allude to that. Um, Congressman Larson, very well known, a longtime representative here. Uh, he defeated his last GOP challenger, Mary Fay, by almost 30 percentage points. Any factors that you think might change his political fortunes uh, next time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're seeing those things play out in both parties. You know, there's a real uh, drive among um, some Democrats to shift the party to the left. And when Larson comes out and talks about Social Security and, you know, uh, reconfiguring highways, some people aren't really having that. You know, he has he has tried to sort of, uh, you know, as you heard just in, in your interview with him, he's tried to sort of cast both of those issues as social justice issues, as issues that would sort of right some historic wrongs that have been um, you know, part of our uh, community for a very long time. But other people look at it and say, gee, this guy wants to spend billions on, on you know, making it easier for, for drivers to get from A to B. Is that really what we want right now as Democrats? And then on the other side, you know, you have Republicans who perhaps um, see a uh, see an opening for uh, the type of candidate like Dr. Laser, who is you know uh, definitely separating himself from the the Trump wing of the party, trying to reach back to that New England Republican spirit of you know again as Representative Larson alluded to you know fiscally conservative, but but socially very moderate. And uh, so those two factors are sort of gonna be playing out in the district in this election cycle. And it's gonna be very interesting. The first district has not been interesting in a while. So I think, uh, you know, politically interesting, I should say. So I think right now, you know, we're seeing the makings of a, of a really important contest mm -hmm. uh, where all these issues are gonna be coming into play. 
Has the GOP ever taken the first district race seriously, Daniela? Well, that's the question, and and that remains the question. You know, you've got a Republican Party and a, and a um, Republican senatorial committee that's going to be looking at, you know, trying to make gains in places where they perhaps have a much greater advantage. So how much um, Larry Laser will be able to tap into any sort of national money is is questionable. You know, we don't really know. Um, but what you can say at this point is that he is a serious candidate with a with a serious, you know, he is taking this very seriously and he is willing to put um, money into this um, to make it a real race, whether it's successful or not, you know, none of us, none of us know, and it is still uh, a ways away, things can change. But by kind of getting out quickly, separating himself from the Trump wing of the party, um, he is, you know, showing that that he's really in this to win. He's not uh, a placeholder. I mean, we've covered Republican state Republican conventions where essentially there was no Republican candidate even on convention day. And they basically are sort of, you know, trying to get people from the audience, hey, will you run for Congress? I mean, that's that's happened. That's happened in the second district. And, you know, the idea that people would be coming forward now, uh, you know, well, you know, 18 months before the the election and putting money into this and making this a real race is kind of novel. And, um, you know, the Republican Party doesn't, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different approach for them. So we'll see. Uh, speaking of the Connecticut GOP, I know that there's some potential leadership changes coming up this summer. There's been an interim chair. And I'm just wondering how, when we look at this race, how the state party might be caught between convention delegates who want more conservative candidates, but do these types of candidates really speak to Connecticut general election voters, Daniela? Yeah, I mean, that's the 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 big question for the Republican Party. You know, the party does appear to be at somewhat of a crossroads, and I think they have to decide, uh, Republicans have to decide whether they are going to continue to be allied with the Trump wing of the party. I mean, don't forget Trump won the primary here in 2016. Trump has a lot of support. Uh, a couple of years ago, I called uh, dozens and dozens of town chairs in Connecticut, and none of them, this was in the middle of the impeachment, the first impeachment battle, none of them were willing to denounce Trump. Uh, publicly. So it, it does show how deep, you know, even in a place like Connecticut, the Trump wing, um, the, the, the deep hold the Trump wing has on the party. And so I think, you know, some people are saying within the Republican Party, that's not a winning message in a place like Connecticut. Others are saying it is. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, this is a party that's that has struggled, uh, certainly on the congressional level uh, for a while now. There are no Republicans from Connecticut serving in Washington. And, um, you know, on the state level, we've got a governor's race coming up as well. And uh, it's going to be really interesting who gets in and what their messaging is. And I think you'll see, as you as you just mentioned, you'll see um the battle for the party leader will the party chairman will sort of um, presage some of that or, mm. or, you know, set the stage for some of that. We just have a couple of minutes left, Daniela. I wanted to talk about a, a former House Republican a leader who just passed away, Robert Ward. When I moved to Connecticut, I believe he was the DMV commissioner at some point. Uh, tell us about him. Yeah, I did not cover him uh, extensively, but I, I did know him. And I do know that, you know, inside the building, he was very, um, uh, 
very respected from really people on both sides of the aisle. I mean, he was not a bomb thrower. He was somebody that uh, was willing to work to get things done. And I think he was just personally very well liked. And and so it's always sad uh, to lose, well, it's sad to lose somebody regardless, but certainly uh, sad to lose somebody who, you know, was doing things uh, with the state's best interest at heart and and not to score political points and not to, you know, sort of get his name in the headlines. Again, that was former House Republican Minority Leader Robert Ward, who died on Sunday at the age of 68. Daniela Altamari, thank you for coming on to give us some more context on Congressman Larson's district. Again, she's the Hartford Current politics reporter. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, Daniela. Thank you so much, Lucy. Appreciate it. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel and Matt Dwyer produced today's show. Thanks to Tess Terrible on the phones today. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Coming up tomorrow, we talk about the importance of play. <laughs>